With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adamian Golf. So in this episode, I guess we're going to cover a couple of topics here. We're going to talk about the best investments in your game. Maybe we'll break it down by budget level or just overall philosophy. We realize golf is a expensive activity and we figured we would just go over some things, give our thoughts on what the best investments are in your game, just to give you some guidelines. We don't like people wasting money, do we, Adam? No, I'm holding the best investment in my life Ooh, right now. And no Ember free mug. ads. No free ads. Careful. Well, hey, if Ember <laughs> want to sponsor us, my coffee mug, you agree, right? I do have one too. I love it. So Ember, reach out to us. We love you. So yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Before we get into that, you and I both had some cool things happen recently. So we, we figured we'd just chat about that, maybe give ourselves a pat on the back to the audience, brag a little bit here. Yours was a little cooler than mine. Yeah, yours was unusual, though. I've come close to what happened to you the other day. It was last week, right? Yeah. So just playing around with my buddies, as I like to. I don't like too much pressure. So we're just playing for a couple of bucks a hole. Front nine was okay. Hit a lot of good shots. Didn't really score. I was about one under. We're playing off a short course as well. It was like 6,300 yards or so. So it's not incredibly special what happened, but... One under on the front nine, really struggled to get anything going. And then the back nine started par. And then on a par five, hit it 290-ish off the tee. Had 199 left in. Downhill, slightly down breeze, pulled out my six iron. Got to the top of my swing and I said to myself, I'm going to fat this. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Is that an internal or an external thought? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's a a complete negative, yeah. (laughs) Technically, it is external, right? External process. Yeah, you weren't thinking about your swing. You were thinking about the result. (laughs) Yeah, I say that because that does go against a lot of the grain of what we hear in psychology. You know, some of my best shots on the day I had really horrible thought processes and some of my worst ones I I was thinking quite positively on. But anyway, at the top of my swing, I thought I'm going to fat this, but I didn't. I hit it really well, really flush. And I saw this ball go and I said, oh, that's going to be close. (laughs) And I saw it take one pitch and then it disappeared. Albatross, the big bird. Yeah. My buddies are like, did that go in? I'm like, I don't know. It's too, <laughs> my eyes are too old to see that. So we got closer and closer. And I'm like, nah, there's got to be some kind of dip in the green there. But no, it, it had disappeared and it had gone in the hole. So I had my second albatross, 199 yards, one bouncing in. That's awesome. 
I have no albatrosses and I have no hole in ones. I've gotten like close so many times. I've got nothing. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Think things like that tend to not excite me as much. Like when I told people about it, they're like, oh my God, that's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's not like it, you controlled it. It's, there's a lot of luck involved. There I don't is know, a like, lot of luck, but it's still cool when it happened. And you still, I mean, you still had to hit a great shot from 200 out. So, yeah. Like I was, I was speaking to Lou Stagner about this and he was very excited about it. He's like working out the odds. I think I, I Googled it, it's something like 5 million to one or something, the chance. I think he's, he had it much lower for pros obviously. But yeah, I said to him that I would rather actually go out and shoot six or seven under than shoot level par with an albatross, even though the odds are, are much different. I yeah, did shoot seven enough. under, by the way. <laughs> so it was, it was my round of the year so That's far. Awesome. But yeah, but it, honestly, it wasn't that impressive. I mean, the albatross took three shots off the score. Sure. And the other four were just, you know, short par fours, maybe a par five that I hit into because we play in a short course. So it didn't look incredibly impressive. It was just solid. It's just like what we talk about, right? There was there were no errors. I didn't lose a ball out of bounds or anything like that. The best golf is boring golf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was my little interesting thing that happened to me last week. John, yours was much more interesting and valuable. Yeah, so in case you haven't heard me bragging about it on every social media network and my newsletter, I've been trying to get into the US Mid-Am for years now. I think that's the dream of all of the older guys who play a lot of competitive golf. You know, we all want to make it to the big event because it's 25 and older. We don't have to worry about competing against all the college kids who are going to eventually be playing pros. So it's the event that always gets circled on the calendar. And this year, it's at Sleepy Hollow in New York, so that's a home game for me, only two hours away from my house, so everyone in my section was super amped up about it. And I've played well in this event before. I've come really close to making it the last few years. I missed it by one or two shots, and I just went on an absolute heater and shot four under. And Not only did I make it, but I won the medalist honors, so I showed you earlier I, I got my it's not often you have the chance to win a USGA medal, but I've got one now and I never in a million years would have ever expected this. And I, I still, it happened five days ago and I I woke up the next morning. I was legitimately like, did that really happen? So it was super special day. So excited to play at the event and yeah, just a cool accomplishment to have and, and Hopefully it validates a lot of the work I've been putting in and then the philosophy I have on the game. Because if you saw me playing 10 years ago, <laughs> you said no chance this guy's going to ever have a USGA medal. So it was a good day. Well, it's extra special for you because you got so many people to share it with. You know, I know when you put it on Twitter, it got a lot of traction and Instagram, it got a lot of traction. That's that's a kind of double-edged sword, right? Because when yeah. you play well, it's, it's <laughs> yes. like you get lots of love. But if you play poorly, there's always going to be the detractors out there. But it's good that... Your philosophy, our philosophy on the pod is working for you at least. Yeah, I've got a ton of support. I think we're going to have some people watching me. If I'm being fully honest, now I've moved from the elation of it and the excitement to, oh crap, I want to play well. Making it is a big deal, but I want to play well. 264 people make it from around the country. I think 6,000 started off. 
And then the field will get whittled down to 64 for match play after two rounds of strokes. So yeah, I want to play well. I have my ego and I, I, I could go out there and absolutely stink it up. Maybe the pressure will be too much for me and, and maybe there'll be a little bit of embarrassment. So I'm a little, yeah, if I'm being honest, I'm starting to try not to think about the pressure, but it's there. But most importantly, I just want to go out and have a good time and I hope I play well. If I don't, I still want to enjoy it for the memory that it is. I don't know if I'll ever get back. I hope I do. But yeah, it is definitely a double-edged sword. They call it building in public when you're kind of sharing your stuff online and what you're going through. I can share the highs. And if I don't play well, that'll be a learning moment. And we could talk about it here. I can write about it online just to know what happened. So we'll see. Either way, I'm going to put my game on the line and we'll see what happens. So I saw your scorecard a little bit and it made me think of personally something I've always struggled with is under the moment I'm under pressure, like a tournament round, something like that, I go into complete protect mode. And now this didn't happen in my recent round where I've learned to overcome this over time and I can certainly do it in non-tournament mode. So, you know, when I got that albatross, I'm like, right, let's get another birdie and another birdie. I want, I want to shoot low today. I really, really struggle with that when actual pressure is on. And I know you came out hot very early, right? You were like five under par after six, seven holes or something? Yeah, I came out. I missed a birdie putt by an inch on the first hole. Then I went, I made three birdies in a row. I made an eight footer on two, par five. I got there in two and had a, it was a tough two putt, but I got there. Three was a tough par four, was out of position. I just hit it to 40 feet on the green. I drained that putt and I'm like, okay. And then I hit it to four feet on the next hole, made that. I'm like, okay. So now I'm three under through four. And on the next hole, I miss a birdie putt by literally half an inch. I thought it was in. So I'm three under through five. And obviously, you know, I start, I wrote about this on on Twitter or X, whatever the hell it's called now. In those instances, when there's a lot of pressure in these events, I can put my score aside in a normal round. But when you're playing under that much pressure, I can't not think about it. So I've learned to acknowledge that my brain is going to go there and I'm not going to scold myself. And then I have methods to redirect myself, whether that's, you know, stuff we've talked about on the show, deep breathing. I think about my kids or like happy moments. I focus on walking slowly or talking to my playing partners. But yeah, I was playing great and I got to five under through 10. And in my head in the past, I don't think I've ever been that deep in a tournament. Actually, I might have. Yes, I have been. Maybe four under. My best ever was like one or two under in a tournament. And my mindset was I had been there so many times. It was the first time I'm like, I'm not going to be scared. I'm just going to keep doing this and just try and finish out each hole the best I can. And, And all the demons showed up and there was a lot of what if you blow it thoughts. But yeah, I think it was a shift in my mentality on this day was that I guess as I got closer and closer to the finish, I just kept telling myself, I'm going to do it. And I think I made, I got to five under, I made a bogey, and then I made another birdie. What was interesting as I was closing up on the 16th hole, I hit a great shot and I just missed a four footer. I had a downhill, very fast putt, and I missed a comebacker. It was my first missed putt of the day. I just, I putted really solidly. And I made a bogey and I'm like, all right, I'm four under. I've got two holes left. And it was a very daunting long par three, like a terrifying green complex. And then my rangefinder broke, which was 
okay. I'm like, that's great. <laughs> I still have my GPS. I still have yardage information, but I kind of put it aside. I just smoked a five iron. I had a six footer coming back and I made that. And luckily the last hole was a par five, a very easy par five. I, I clipped a tree and was in the fairway, knocked it as close as I could to the green and just kind of kept telling myself, you're going to do it. Got on the green and two putted. And then I not ashamed to admit it. I actually broke down in tears. <laughs> it was just like, I, it was almost like 25 years of this game and me like destroying myself so many times. And I knew what it meant immediately. I knew I was going to be in and perhaps I'd won the medalist. I had no idea, but I knew I was going to make it. You know, shooting four under is quite low with this. Yeah, you know, usually you have to shoot one or two under, but four, I was like, okay, I did it. And it just, the emotion of it, it kind of came out. But yeah, it was just, the mindset shift was interesting. And I think it speaks to experience because I've played so many competitive rounds over the last eight or nine years and I've blown it so many times. I've done some good things, but I think as you get more and more experience that I pay attention to what's going on, I wasn't afraid of blowing it. I said, if I make a triple coming in, I've done that before. I've choked and I'll choke again. That's okay. And I just, I don't know, there was a voice in there that said, just keep going. You're going to do it. And that day it worked. But the next time you tee it up, you don't know what's going to happen. So it's nice to know I'm capable of that. And maybe it was a breakthrough, but I try not to project too far in the future. But yeah, I kind of used, I call them my bag of tricks what I need to do to redirect my mind when ultimately it's going to go to places like thinking about the result, being nervous, my heart's pounding. And it just shows like you can play good golf, as you said, with not the best mindset, but there are ways to get around it with experience. And I think this can apply to anyone who's trying to break 90 or 80. The feelings are the same. I know they're the same. I know what people feel like when they have a chance to break 80 and they've got five holes left. So it's just part of the game. And I think accepting that it's okay if things don't work out is a bit comforting and not to have like a defeatist attitude. It's more of like, you know, I can do this, I can not do this, but I'll just try my best to select good targets, go through my routine and fill my mind up the best I can in between shots in a productive way. Just keep going. But it's hard. When did you realize you were leading? I knew I'm not usually a scoreboard watcher, but I guess I did a little game theory on 18. I loaded my phone. I was in the morning wave. I'm like, I just wanted to double check how much room I had. And I was in the lead. And there was an afternoon wave as well. But I knew if I made kind of like a routine par on this par five, it was going to be, I was more thinking I can make a birdie here, but I don't want to make a sloppy bogey or double. So I hit my driver and I knocked it as close to the green as I could and, and kind of wedged it to an appropriate spot. I kind of took a bunker out of play. But yeah, when I finished and I saw the results, it was just a matter of waiting the rest of the day to see if, I mean, I knew I had made it. There were five spots available. I, think, I don't know, there was like 150 people there, something like that. But I wanted to see if I got the medal because I didn't, I mean, again, if you if you finish first in one of these USGA qualifiers, you do get a medal. So that that's kind of special. So I hung around for that. And yeah, some guys got close. There were some guys who were at four under late in the round and Maybe I was rooting against them a little bit and <laughs> they, they faded back to three or two under. And yeah, I got my voodoo medal. dolls in the yeah, background. <laughs> I, I hate to Rain wish dance. ill on another golfer, <laughs> but yeah, I, I wanted that medal. It, I knew, I knew I just, I don't know how many shots at making the mid am I'll ever have, but getting a medal, I really don't know how many shots I'll ever have at that again. So yeah, that was pretty awesome. 
that scenario on the last hole is quite interesting where you you know you have a buffer and yeah. you have a par five there so yep. in theory like this is a really easy scenario it and was it's fine especially under pressure it's hard to find that balance between taking the foot off the gas and keeping it going because you don't want to i think in my case i tend to relax too much in those scenarios and actually create poor performance from that yeah. rather than saying right this is a puffer i actually want to make a birdie here which is probably i know you can't force birdies but you know that kind of positive more positive mindset tends to make me perform a little better and there's some actually interesting research out there on different types of personalities and scenarios they get into and whether it causes choking so i know for for certain people who perform well i know i, I used to play with this guy and I think he was borderline narcissist, but he was very good <laughs> under pressure. But he was only good when he was winning. Once he was winning, he was able to take that and push it further. Whereas I'm the opposite. When I'm winning, I really take the foot off, off the pedal too much. But then the other side, it flips. If you're in a scenario where, say, we're, we're one shot behind, I'm better at making up that gap. Whereas he doesn't perform that well when he's behind a little bit. So it is an interesting thing. I have a blog post written on it somewhere, but it was interesting research about how you frame things mentally based on your personality in order to avoid choking and keep things going. But how yeah. did you deal with that scenario? I still went back to what's the appropriate play here? I mean, it's nice that it was a 500 yard par five to finish. Because again, that in my head, I'm like, I don't, you know, I could mess up here and hit a bad drive. There was no water or anything like that. So I just said, you know, hit the driver. I clipped the tree and luckily I got a decent bounce and it went in the fairway. And I think I had like 260 or 270 in. So I'm like, just hit my hybrid as far up as I can. I hit a decent shot. The only time I actually changed my target a little bit was I had a 40 yard wedge shot over a bunker. And I thought to myself, the only way I could potentially do myself in right now is if I dump it in that bunker and then something crazy. Like I'm not, a, to be quite honest with everyone, I'm not a great bunker player. So you put me in a bunker, I could have bladed it out of bounds. Who knows? So I did adjust my target a little left of the pin to make sure that even if I chunked it a little bit, it was not going to go in that bunker. So that was the only different decision I made with the information I had, which was just make a routine par here and don't make a sloppy bogey or double. So yeah, I, I adjusted probably three yards to the left of the appropriate target that I would have with that wedge. And I did knock it on the green to 15 feet. I gave myself, I almost made the birdie putt, but I just cozied it up there and tapped in. So yeah, I think tee shot approach shot played it exactly the same as I always would. And then there was that minor adjustment to avoid the bunker and the big number. Now, again, let's say I was one under, then I have to play the whole because one under might not have, it actually didn't do it. Two under was the number that got you into a playoff for an alternate spot that day. So I try not to do stuff like that, but it was a strange situation that I was that far under par that I, I did change one little thing, but it, it's not like I took like a seven iron off the tee and said, I'm going to hit three, seven irons. That would have been way too conservative. Like I don't like doing stuff like that where I go out of my comfort zone. So yeah, I just tried to do mostly the same thing, but I knew where I was. And, and sometimes you do have to do that in, in tournament situations. Yeah. I found the article. It was, it was called how to beat your playing partners every time. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell, I'll tell you why in a moment. 
little bit clickbaity, but it has just a touch good information in there. Well, so the research is from Chib at Allers in 2014, and they they looked at different personalities, and they said that loss averse people, people who hate losing, they're more likely to choke if they're thinking about what they stand to gain from a performance. Whereas people who value winning more, that's not me, I don't value winning, I value not losing. People who value winning more are more likely to choke when they frame things in terms of what they stand to lose. So there was me and that, my friend, two different personalities. So obviously how to beat your playing partners every time is if you figure out their loss averse, you talk to them about what they stand to gain. You know, if they're, if they're like me, you tell them, <laughs> wow, you're playing really well today. You could go, you could go low. And for me, that makes me take my foot off the pedal. I, I, I tend to go backwards with that. I have to constantly fight that. Whereas for my friend, you know, if he's one shot back, you know, you start to jibe him about, oh, I'm beating you today. And then that, <laughs> that makes him perform worse. So yeah, that's how you can game your playing partner. It's not really ethical, so I wouldn't recommend doing it. But it's an interesting read anyway. If you Google how to beat your playing partners every time Adam Young Golf. Well, I think the best thing we could do is and we why we always talk about feedback and paying attention is that I always tell everyone, if you are competing, let's say you're a tournament player, or even if you're playing in these games with your buddies that give you pressure and sometimes you know the pressure of just writing down scores on a scorecard could be enough for people but you have to go back and pay attention to what goes on in your mind and your body when you start worrying about these things so for me when i do feel pressure i definitely speed up so i have to consciously slow down the breathing really helps me. I mean, I did so many breathing exercises during that round. Box breathing, which is kind of like a four in, four hold, and four out, where you just really deep through the nostrils and an extra little inhale, and then just very slow out. There's a ton of studies that what's going on with the carbon dioxide in your body will slow down your heart rate, consciously walking slower. So stuff like that. I pay attention. I look for what's the fix that gives me the most comfort so that when I get to my ball over the ball, not that I'm not nervous or I'm not thinking about it. I just want to give myself a better opportunity to hit a good shot. There's no guarantees. And and like we said, you still can hit good shots with bad thoughts, but I'd rather have less of them. And I'd rather be more confident over the ball and have a better chance of hitting good shots. But a lot of it is experience making yourself uncomfortable, putting yourself in these situations and paying attention to what's going on and hopefully making an adjustment for next time. So again, when I show up to this USGA event, that's an entirely new situation for me. I've never played in a national championship before. I have no clue how I'm going to react. I might be so nervous on the first tee, I can't feel my hands, or maybe I'll feel comfortable. I have no clue. I don't know if I'll ever be back, but I'll do my best to go through my routines, pick good targets, pay attention to what goes on and learn from it. And if it's great, fine. If it's embarrassing and I put up some big numbers, that's what happens when you step into the arena. You have to be open to those possibilities. So we'll so see. If, if there's a sliding scale of if zero is, I'm just completely relaxed. I'm out there to enjoy it. I don't care what I shoot. I'm literally just going to go out there, chat to my playing partners and enjoy soaking the experience. If that is zero... And 10 is I'm going to be hyper-focused. I'm going to be you know, not necessarily ignoring playing partners, but, you know, just be so focused on trying your hardest to produce a, a good score. Where would you say, what's your strategy? What are you going to go in with the, the goal of being? 
I feel like I probably need to be at a six or a seven is my best guess. I need to have, I think I might have some friends following me that day, family, some people who've been on social media, so they might show up. So I might have a little crowd. Maybe that'll make me feel comfortable. Maybe it'll make me feel more nervous. I have no idea. But a friend, Will Noth, who we should have on the podcast, he's a was a tremendous college player, won the Byron Nelson Award, still a great player. He's going to caddy for me, so that'll be helpful. So yeah, I think I need to be I need to have my focus and my game face and all that stuff. But at the same time, I don't want to be so serious that I don't lose the experience. So yeah, I think I'm going to try and be at a six or seven and who knows what will show up that day. But we'll see. Either way, it's fun and exciting, but yeah, a little nerve wracking. You know, you get you get what you ask for when you try and qualify into these events and you get into it. You're like, okay, now I actually have to play in this thing. But yeah, there's plenty of people there who are going to be nervous too and feel the same way as me. And that's the cool part about it. The USJ will have some fun events. We'll get to meet each other. So yeah, it should be good. So I'll report back as to what happens and maybe we can talk about it to see the after of my intentions going in and what actually happened, the good or the bad. What do you do over the golf ball when you're under pressure? Do different thoughts come into your into your head? Are you doing box breathing as you're actually over the golf ball? Are you- I don't think so. I think I almost forget what's going on. I find it's I have more problems, not problems. I think it's harder to solve the problems in between the shots where your mind goes for me. And when I get over the ball, it's yeah, looking at my yardages pin sheet, getting all my information, kind of making my decision, going through, you know, we've talked about, we did two episodes on pre-shot rehearsals, the analysis, rehearsal, and execution phase. So that feels more comfortable to me because I've done it so many times in tournaments. So I I feel like I'm trying to engage that autopilot slash athletic part of me where I'm just kind of reacting to the target. But of course, there are times where I'm like, oh, don't hit it there or something like that. There's like a last second. I'm not of the mind that we can completely control our brains, but I think it's been so well rehearsed and I've done it so many times. And this is where experience is important that that feels more comfortable to me. But what I find fascinating is that when you apply even more pressure. So for example, when I actually play in this event, I might not feel comfortable over the ball at all because it's a new type of pressure for me. I have no idea. I might start thinking, don't chunk it, don't do this. And that's something I'll have to deal with and do my best to redirect my mind. But that's where I keep telling people experience matters. And everyone always asks me, oh, I'm looking to tee it up in my first tournament. And I tell people, I don't know what's going to go through your head. It could be anything. Nothing can prepare you for that, what's going to happen in your mind. So yeah, I think I do my best to create that mental cocoon over the ball. It's comfortable to me. But yeah, there are times where the pressure pierces it. And I do worry about the result and I just do my best to just, I don't sit there and waggle forever. I just go. (laughs) It's, It's hard, but I don't have a great answer for it. But I think that's what most people do under pressure. They just, they do their best to just pick the good target, go through the routine and just execute and not sit there and, and waggle forever. Because I think as time goes on, your chances of being more confident are going to decrease. That's a hard problem to solve in golf. I think knowing your patterns under pressure as well is is important for example i know that when i get scared with the driver i'm more likely to hit it left you know my body stalls out and my hands flip over i'm much more likely to hit it left so in that scenario i have to remind myself when i'm feeling pressure when i'm feeling nervous 
let's commit to a, a kind of aggressive swing on this, like I normally would when I'm freer. With irons, it tends to be fat and left if I make a mistake. So whenever I'm feeling pressure, I have to be a little bit more careful and implement a thought that says, right, I've got to try and hit the ground a little bit farther forwards here. And then there's the other side of that. You're under pressure. You're saying, right, I'm going to hit the ground a little farther forwards. <laughs> but then your brain is saying, well, don't do it too don't much. Don't do it too much. Yeah, exactly. Because then you'll thin yeah. it. But that's where your practice comes in of actually trying to hit different parts of the ground so you know you could do it more precisely. You know, if, yep. if it's the first time you're doing it is under pressure, that's the wrong place to be implementing that. But yeah, I mean, the only way around this is to, or the only way to learn these things is to actually put yourself under pressure more often, which yeah. kind of sets. Yeah ways into what we're going to be talking about today best investments and i suppose paying for tournament fees or one person mentioned on twitter gambling and i kind of agree with them you know if you're playing for a little bit of money each each round each hole it forces you to hole out so even if the pressure isn't there you're forcing yourself to hole out so you get more realistic scores you get more realistic expectations long term if you're like me even a couple of dollars on each hole does fill you your boots with oh, nerves I Absolutely. If I think back to the last 10, 11 years into like this progression of dealing with more and more pressure, the first layer of it was kind of getting back into golf. And when I moved out to where I live now from New York City to the suburbs and I joined a golf course, I could finally play a lot more. And with that, I started playing these fun like five, $10 Nassau games with guys at the course. And I was terrified. I remember shanking shots on the 18th hole and dealing with that first layer of pressure was so helpful because, again, my intention was to keep getting better. For some people, that might not be fun. So I always want to draw that line. But yeah, I think if we're, let's transition now to where the best investments in your game, like making yourself uncomfortable in golf is the best way to get comfortable. So if you are someone who has aspirations of shooting lower scores and getting better then like layering on these appropriate levels of pressure, don't start teeing it up in a, in a crazy important qualifier. Start with a $5 Nassau where there's something on the line and you have some social pressure and not wanting to embarrass yourself in front of friends. Like yeah, that's a good first layer. And what's it going to cost you? 10, 15 bucks extra if you lose? We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. If you want to support our show, make sure to check out our sponsor LinkedIn by visiting linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. When you're hiring for your small business, it's essential that you get quality and qualified professionals. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn jobs can help you find the right people for your team with the fast and free tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. They have a network of more than a billion professionals, many of which you can't find elsewhere. And this makes LinkedIn the best place to hire while making the process easy and intuitive. Because of how easy it is with LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses find qualified candidates in less than 24 hours. LinkedIn have just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier. That's why two and a half million businesses trust LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice 
the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Yeah, I think so there's a philosophy in psychology called systematic desensitization, where you gradually, if you have a fear of something, you gradually introduce it. So say you have a yeah. fear of spiders, the first layer would be have a spider in the room in a box. <laughs> so don't put a tarantula on your face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's the other one. What was that? That's called immersion theory, immersion, I think, yeah, which immersion, is, yes. okay, you take that person frightened of spiders and you put them in a room crawling with tarantulas. It's like Indiana Jones and snakes. I was watching. Raiders of the Lost Ark last All night. Right. He, he, he hates steaks, but yeah, yeah, that would be terrifying. But yeah, I mean, I suppose you have to decide what type of personality you are. But for me, certainly, I know systematic desensitization is the best. So I would recommend for people who, who are that way inclined to, before you play your first tournament, try and play with your buddies for a little bit of money. So you're getting some kind of mid ground there. But yeah, as you, the first time you play that tournament, you're going to be so nervous. I remember blacking out the first time I played the tournament. I stood on the tee, couldn't feel my hands. As you said, I saw this little tunnel vision. <laughs> you're like, how am I going to hit it there? <laughs> yeah. No, well, it was just like tunnel vision. I look at the target and I, it was black around it. It was very difficult to see. But then, you know, I started playing in that, obviously played bad the first tournament I ever played. But then when you went back to playing normal golf, it's like, wow, this is so easy. Yes. And then, you know, I lay it up, lay it up, lay it up. And I got to the point where I played once on on TV in an amateur event. And that was so nerve wracking. Again, same thing happened. Tunnel vision, couldn't feel my body, couldn't feel my hands. Played okay in that one. But after that, a normal level tournament just felt like a walk in the park. So once you level up, the things before it feel much easier. So like you said, you got, in order to feel comfortable, you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations or paraphrase. Yeah, that. I think it's 100% correct is that I used to feel the amount of pressure I put on myself just playing recreational golf by myself was insane. And as you do other stuff, so we'll talk, you know, now we're talking about investing money in your game. Like, yeah, if for some people paying that, entry fee into a tournament there's always you know you could always look at your local golf association i know there's some national things but there's always no matter what your handicap level there seems to be plenty of opportunities to play in some type of event so if you spend your 100 150 bucks as an entry fee you can view that if you're looking at it properly like i'm going to spend this money as a learning experience to see what happens to my game when i add more pressure with the knowledge that if I have the right attitude and I collect the right feedback, that can make me a stronger player for the rest of golf, which again, 99% of the time, you're not going to be playing tournament golf. So I think that could work out well for certain people if you have the right attitude. And certainly gambling, I love playing $5, 10 $20 Nassau's. I don't like going above that. I don't like winning that much money from people and I don't like losing it either. It becomes less friendly. So the few big money games I've played in, I don't enjoy going past those levels. But yeah, it gives you something to play for and some type of pressure. And again, making yourself uncomfortable with the intent of learning from it rather than scolding yourself can be a great way to get better at this game. 
Yeah, you just need enough to keep you going. You know, if you're having a bad round or something, if you're playing for nothing, it's very easy for most people to just say, ah, I'm going to give up for this round. Whereas if you're playing for money, you keep going and, you know, something to force those short putts you know there's fewer gimmies and it kind of forces you to make every putt and yeah that's very valuable as well because you know there's so many amateurs out there who shoot a a 90 or an 80 in air quotes there's really probably 10 shots higher if <laughs> a lot of six the real footers rules. given yeah. yeah yeah i'm looking at some of my notes here and like where, where i always start with this conversation i've probably tweeted this or xed is it xed now can you <laughs> is it a ver I, like elon hasn't define this for me. I mean, Twitter X is such an important part of my life. I need to know this. So I've X'd this question in the past. Let's say you had, we'll set a budget of like uh, that shiny new driver. I mean, drivers are like five, six, 700 bucks now. It's kind of crazy, but people buy them all the time. I mean, the OEMs are making billions of dollars. So I always start with like the thought, what's a better investment in your game? Buying a brand new driver or taking that money and putting it in lessons. And I would say almost all of the time, I think the best investment in your game, again, no guarantees, there's no guarantees in golf, but if you took that $500, that $300, that $600 and found a good coach and committed to a lesson plan, you know, five lessons, six lessons, whatever it is, I'd bet my money that that was going to give a better long-term result to your game than that new driver. Not that I'm against new drivers. We love club fitting. We have Woody Lashing on all the time. But that to me is, you know, if I had to choose the number one thing is I think lessons. That's the best place to start because you're going to get customized advice for your swing, hopefully a practice plan, someone to bounce ideas off of, and that's giving yourself a better chance because there's a lot of stuff and we'll get into some different categories that golfers get tempted and lured into like blowing money on like training aids and other stuff and technology. And yet that's where I always start, like lessons, customized advice from a professional. Like I, I think that's your best bet. Especially if you expand it out. I mean, looking at one year can be difficult, but if you expand that out to 10 years, you know, and there oh, are yeah. guys who buy a new driver every single year. They buy the latest yeah. model or they buy last year's model or whatever. But, you know, $700 driver, 10 times a $7,000. It's pretty clear to see then that after 10 years, which are you going to have lower scores with? $7,000 of lessons or $7,000 worth of drivers? And the, the answer is pretty clear that the lessons, as long as you, you're with a good coach, you're going to produce better results overall yeah i got the last golf lesson i had was probably 12 or 13 years ago if i didn't have those three or four lessons we would not be talking today because yeah. that guy got me on the right path or at least told me a few things where i'm like oh that's what i should be doing and it just i was just kind of aimlessly wandering around with my golf swing and he gave me some thoughts and I've been on my own for a long time and maybe I'll never get full swing lessons again, but I've gotten lessons from five or six different swing professionals since I was 12 and they've all made me better. All of them. We have that episode with Shaheen Nakjavani that people can go back to where we had kind of a longer term discussion on how to find swing professionals and work with them. We did an episode on how to make swing changes. So we do have resources in our catalog on this. I see lessons very much the same way as I see investing. Lessons are going to pay dividend. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm a teacher, but lessons are going to pay dividends in the future. And the earlier you start, the more compounded growth you'd have with them. Because say, for example, it's just education. 
even just education on the ball flight laws alone, that is going to pay you so many dividends in the future because anytime you hit a bad shot, you're going to be very quick to understand, which means you're going to be quick to implement the right thing, the right change. Whereas if you don't understand ball flight laws, that can pay negative dividends. That's like investing in, well, I don't want to say crypto, but yeah, I suppose it's a good analogy right now. Probably by the time we release this pod, crypto will be 10 times higher, but you get the idea, a bad investment because you can have someone who doesn't understand ball flight laws. They make a swing, they pull hook it. They don't understand. They think they've come over the top of it. And it, it might have been that they've swung into out. They've just had a really closed face. They don't understand how to read the ball flight. And so what do they do? They start to try and swing more into out because they think they came over the top of the last one. And that just gets them into a worse situation. That type of player, if they have the wrong education, the more they practice, the worse they'll get because they're practicing the wrong things. So at, le- at the very least, I would say from you know investing in lessons, invest in the education side of it. Maybe not even a physical lesson. But, you know, invest in, in understanding ball flight laws, maybe getting your book, my book, maybe getting some of the programs, something like that. I know it sounds like an ad now, but, you know, there's plenty of other stuff out there. That was going to be my second suggestion. If you, if you don't have the budget to get a full <laughs> suite of lessons, you know, Adam and myself, my book is 25 bucks. Your book is 25 bucks. We both have digital programs for under 100 bucks for Foundations of Golf, Strike Plan, Next Level Golf. So we try and offer stuff that can help you coach yourself at a lower price. And I think you and I have a million testimonials to show that they've worked with people. But yeah, with that all being said, and I think our programs and our information can work with lessons. Yeah, we've said it over and over again. If you've been listening to this show, I think this is our 100th episode, if I'm not wrong. We've layered this in all over the place because yeah, it's just getting that customized advice from a trained eye is, I think it can make your path in this game more efficient and save you time. And I know I get messages all the time, well, I got lessons and they made me worse. Yeah, that can happen too. There's always a risk. Maybe you got the wrong instructor. Maybe you didn't commit to it properly. There's no guarantees in golf and in life. So there's always a risk to anything. Yeah, that's why I think education is so important because at least say you're educating yourself on the ball flight law or something like that. There is there's only good information, for hopefully, hopefully, especially with more. Yeah, it's foundational information. So yeah, exactly. All right, so but, that that's our spiel on lessons. I think you got some more. <laughs> yeah, I think the future of golf instruction is this more blended approach, where you have part live and part online, because I know golf instruction can be expensive, especially in America. You know, I'm I'm not cheap to have a lesson with. And so I try my best to produce a lot of content, some of it free, that is going to be educational. Then I've got premium content that puts it all together for you into a nice workable picture. And then obviously you can supplement that. I see a a live lesson with me as a supplement. You know, I don't want people to have one lesson a week with me. I don't really want that for the most part. I want them to have a lot of education and then separate those lessons out a little bit more, especially in live lessons. So yeah, I'll often, someone will contact me for lessons and I'll recommend that they get an online program first, which is much cheaper, and then you get that nice blend. And in a lesson, I can also then say to someone, look, this is the lesson, this is what you have to do, and here then are the 
supplemental pieces of information that you need to go off to support this lesson. It's just like schoolwork, right? You have this one class, or especially in university or college, you have this one-hour class, but then for every hour of class, they, they used to recommend like 10 to 20 hours of your own research on the back of that to support that. So that's how I see the, the future of golf instruction going now. It's more valuable for the player, and it's helpful for us coaches as well. Yeah. I mean, the online lesson stuff has really taken off. There's the Skillist app with like tons of great pros on there and you can pay, you know, you can live in New Zealand and take a lesson from someone in the US or Europe. It's quite incredible. And the inform- and again, they can give you good information and good practice plans that has value. What do you want to move on to next? Training aids? Because that's, I feel like that's the next spot or category that attracts a lot of dollars well i I actually organized my notes in terms of cost okay so you want to i mean we can do it randomly because we started with lessons but you know free things are good investments right like our podcast so subscribe everybody and and there are other good podcasts out there as well you know if you're interested in more technical information. I think this is a blend of technical and stats is the Hack It Out Golf podcast. I always yep, recommend yep. that. Lou and them do a great job and Mark and Greg Chalmers. On the Mark as well, on the Mark yeah, podcast. We love, we yeah, love we'll have Mark him on Edelman. the show at some point. Yeah, he's very talks a lot about instruction as well. What are the ones do instruction? Lots of them, like Chasing Scratch is good. It's very entertaining, but not, it doesn't tend to be as instructional. I think they, they're starting to. We'll have them back okay. on soon, but I think they've yeah. figured out a lot of stuff in their games and they've had a lot. I mean, myself and, and you have been on the show and some other coaches that it's been a better blend of entertainment and learning at this point, just seeing what they're going through. So that that's we always give those guys a shout out. Yeah, there's. I'm not a huge <laughs> – this will sound hypocritical. I'm not a huge podcast person. I don't drive a lot, so that's really the only times I would listen to them. And sometimes I'll listen to like – personal finance and business stuff. I I just have to be honest. I don't listen to a ton of podcasts. Yeah. Well, I'm not interested in like golf commentary so much or the entertainment side of it as much. I do listen to Chasing Scratch, but when I listen to podcasts, I tend to want to learn something. It's got to be right. I want facts. I want figures. I want actionable advice, things like that. So all my podcasts are all to do with that kind of thing. I'm the same with books as well. I I never read any fiction books. It's always nonfiction, educational. So yes, definitely our podcast is in that ballpark and the Hack It Out Golf podcast as well. on the market, I'd highly recommend. So lots and lots of YouTube stuff out there, definitely. There's educational. <laughs> you get drowned in educational stuff with that. But there's a lot of good stuff. I don't want to detract people from watching those things. Yeah, I think there is when we talk about like actually investing money, I think free is fine. Would we give you and I give away a ton of free info and I hope based on the responses we've got, I think it's been helpful to people. But there is something about I never like people to spend money for the sake of spending it, but there is a psychological commitment you make when you do spend money on something that I think holds you accountable to it. So if you said, I'm going to pay for lessons or I'm going to pay for Adam's strike plan or my four foundations course or something else, not everyone follows through on it. Some people just pay it and don't watch, but there's, you know, you're kind of holding yourself accountable now because I invested a hundred bucks in this or I invested 50 bucks or a few hundred bucks on lessons. So now I want to get my money's worth. So free is nice. And a lot of people take advantage of that. You know, there is, and I'm not, I genuinely am not trying to get people to just chill our stuff and buy it, but there is a psychological impact on 
pricing and how our brains work. And the more you invest, the more you feel invested in it. So again, there's different levels you can go. Do I want people to start spending $5,000? No, I think you could do a lot with several hundred bucks. Our cheapest or less expensive, our, our most favorite things like foot spray, I'm veering into training aids here. Our favorite training aid costs 15 bucks, right? Not even. costs that much in CVS. It's like $4. I haven't checked recently, but- uh, I think if you get Odorex three pack on like right. Amazon, it'll, I mean, it'll last you over a year. I mean, you talk about best investment. I don't think you could outperform that. Yeah, foot spray is awesome. Obviously, spray in the face so you can see strike location and spray in the ground as well. If you're on the grass tee, make a little spray line on the ground, place the ball on top, hit your shots. Or you can just replace that with a tee. I often do this on the golf course. Ball's resting on the fairway. I place a tee next to the ground so that you, when you hit your shot, the ball's gone, but you can look back down and see where your divot was relative to the tee. So that's a, a great training aid that costs what one cent yeah i'm thinking of the other my other favorites i'll give a shout out to tour tempo and, and my buddy john novacell jr 25 bucks i paid it i don't know seven years ago i still use it from time to time i'm having a little uh-ohs with my wedges and listening to the beats is helping me it's kind of detracting my mind from these silly mechanical thoughts when i'm struggling love tour tempo you, you've read about it in my book on my website we had john on the show 25 bucks lifetime access. I think that's a great investment. I struggle with training aids. We, we've talked about them in the past on the show. It's very hard for me to recommend a training aid that's going to work for everyone. There's only a few that come to mind. I like the orange whip. I've used it. Like I can't imagine that's going to hurt anyone's game as, as kind of a warm-up tool, honing the rhythm of your swing and the balance, doing stuff like super speed or the stack speed training, maybe a little bit more risk there. And those are a little more expensive, but most people are going to get more swing speed from those. I've seen some dramatic results from listeners over the years. Yeah, there's a lot of other, I'm not going to bad mouth or, or speak negatively about training aids by name. There's just a lot of them where you I think some of them are poorly designed, so they're hard to use and they're not engaging. So you like try them out and you're like, oh, there goes 150 bucks. And then some of them are designed in a way that is trying to address a specific swing flaw or whatever that's not relevant to your swing. So I do, it's not that I don't like training aids. I just, I have a hard time saying this is the one for everyone because there's so many to choose from and I, I couldn't possibly do all that research. Yeah, there's some out there at the moment that I've seen some of the marketing that makes me a little bit sick, I'll be honest. Yeah, no, um, a lot of them are downright scammy in the way they... If you see an Arizona like mountain drop in, in the uh, background on uh, the golf yeah. channel, the, that's usually a good indication that you shouldn't buy it. Yeah, whenever they say this... This training aid will make you hit it perfectly every time. It's Cure like, your oh, slice geez, are they forever. Really, people buying yeah. into that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I played the other <sighs> month with a guy from my golf course, and when I told him about what he was doing, he's like, "Well, let me tell you about my training aid collection." He's like, "I've he's he wasn't joking." He's like, "I literally buy every single one, all of them, on every infomercial." I'm like, "Really?" He's like, "Yeah, I've got them all." So there are people. I mean, these you know they they market the hell out of these things. Some of them are good. And some of them are very bad. I did an expose on them probably six or seven years ago on my site. I bought a bunch of the really scummy looking ones. Some of them broke. I actually like the chipper ones. I'm not against the chipper ones. If you've got the yips, like I'm not against having like the square strike or one of those. Like I, I actually thought those were the ones with like the massive bounce. Those actually could be helpful to people who are really struggling with their wedges, but I don't recommend them for everyone. Yeah. 
But these things, they're just going to help a subset of players. And there's a huge survivorship bias as well. I mean, yes, you're going to hear the good testimonials. You're going to see good reviews of certain things. But you don't hear the people who got the got the training aid. It didn't work and they, they throw it away. Yeah, but some of the marketing at the moment I just think is unethical. (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, it's a lot of it is. I've spoken, I think a perfect example to your point, I think I mentioned it probably five or six times. I love that DST compressor thing. Great for me. Would I recommend it to everyone? No, it might be too difficult or just not the right implementation for other people. So I like it. It's helped me. But could I say every golfer is going to benefit from it? I have no idea. I'm not sure. Another one I've tried, Lagshot is another one that's popped up a lot. It's kind of a mixture of like the orange whip with a club on it. I've tried it. I actually think it was pretty good and there was some merit to it. I think it's one of the better ones. But again, could I recommend it to everyone? I don't know. I mean, you could try it out and see if it helps you. But again, you've got to invest the money. And I have a hard time telling people like, oh, definitely buy this. So yeah, that's kind of my overall thoughts on training aids. It's easy to start blowing 50, 100, 200 bucks on them. And then you'd kind of get it and you're like, ah, that didn't really do what I wanted it to do. It goes in the garage and starts collecting dust and you're on to the next one. So I think that's kind of like a slippery slope where people can waste a lot of money. Yeah. I know when I started coaching, I was like, right, I'm going to really invest in my coaching. So I went through and I'm like, I've got this budget. I'm going to buy all these training aids. I think I threw out 99% of them, wasted so much money. Yes, yeah, it's, it's just so it's so tough with training aids, I'll be honest. But I mean, one that we... I think we both would agree on that it would be very, you'd be very hard pressed to say this would be thrown out as the divot board. Yeah. It's very good. I can't see how that would hurt someone, right? I was using it earlier today. Yeah. That was on my list here. That's one of the few I've come across where I'm like, yeah, how could you get worse using this? So, because it's just such a basic fundamental piece of feedback. Yeah, it seems like most of the good training aids are actually just feedback devices. Where did you strike the ground? Where did you strike the face? Those type of things. Or, you know, as we get to the upper end, launch monitors, what what was the path in the face? So, yeah, I think feedback training aids are very good. As you get into things that start to force your body into positions, those are where you might see, okay, it helps a subset of golfers, doesn't help some golfers, but... So, yeah, so things that I like things that don't force you as as much. More feedback, they make you move or go through the movement. So you're consciously going through the movement or better if it is a movement aid. But that's not to say that some training aids that force you to take a position, it's not to say that they're bad either. It's just that, like I said, you're more likely to see just a subset of golfers improve with those ones. Yep. I guess we're somewhat agnostic on the category in general. <laughs> I've got some other thoughts here like technology. We've talked about technology a lot on this show. One of my best bang for the bucks at this point is GPS. I mean, you could get a free GPS app on your phone. And if that gives you good yardage information, you start using it to different points on the course. Like that could, I mean, that could be a game changer for some people if they use a lot of the strategy advice we've talked about on this show. I think having just like a basic GPS watch, you know, they're 100, 150 bucks now, the last a very long time. I'd prefer that over a laser rangefinder just because it gives you more information and it gets you less thinking about the actual distance to the flag and elsewhere. We like that back number or close to it. So you choose a little bit more club. There's some really good apps out there at this point, whether it's GPS stuff, game tracking stuff, Arcos, ShotScope, Scott Fawcett's app, Decade has... At this point, he's got, I'll give him a plug because there's great 
coaching information. There's practice games on there now. There's also, you can track your strokes gained. That's an awesome app. Shot Metrics from Mark Brody is another great strokes gained app. So we've talked about them on different episodes, but yeah, I like technology if it's used properly. And there's a lot of stuff that's not crazy expensive. Do you need to go out and buy a TrackMan? No. <laughs> I don't think you need to spend 20 grand on a TrackMan or a GC Quad. I think those are more professional products. But at the lower end, yeah, if we're talking about strategy and practice habits, that type of stuff, then yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of great apps coming. I'm starting to lose track of them. There's some people doing some really good work out there at fairly modest prices. Yeah. I love the apps. I love the data collection. I use Arcos myself. I've used ShotScope as well. I find them both very, very valuable. I do sometimes, as much as I love the stats, I go through it because I'm just a numbers person. I do sometimes question like how usable the data is for improvement. I think that there's still a long way to go with those things. And I'm hopefully going to fill that gap with my own app at some point. But because there's certain things that I'm looking for as a coach, you know, things we talk about all the time. Why did you lose the shot? Okay, you're hitting short, but why? Is it club selection? Is it you're hitting it fat? Is it you hit it toe? You know, those type of things. So, yeah, I think there's more to be done with the data. And I'm sure every <laughs> app company is just stealing those ideas now. But yeah. So, I mean, we did an episode on that, how to use shot tracking apps where we were like, all right, strokes gained is a good starting point. Then you got to figure out why, like, are they strategic mistakes? Is it a face control thing or ground con? Like you get, you have to go deeper and deeper and isolate it. And that's the type of tools we try and give you on this show. But yeah, I think for some, like you don't have to go down the rabbit hole with all the data. At the minimum, I'd say like if you're playing golf without like a GPS, some type of distance measuring device at this point, I would say that, you know, if you're listening to this show and you're that type of golfer, like that's a small, either free or small investment you can make. And then if you are more inclined with the data, then there's like that next level of shot tracking type stuff that can give you good feedback, but be prepared to do a little bit more analysis on top of that with our help that we've given you on some shows. Yeah, it's a bit of an arms race there. It's interesting with the shot, the strokes gain stuff as well as, as you know, if I, an example was the other day I played, didn't shoot too well, it's six over. So there, there's one for consistency, right? Shot seven under the week before, then six over the next week. And I actually played pretty similar both days. And I actually drove the ball incredibly well on the day that I shot six over. But my driving stats were quite poor in terms of strokes gained. And when I look at it, I, I hit one bad shot and it was it left. Big, I just, yeah. it was, yeah, it just cost me big. It was out, out of bounds. It was the place where you couldn't do it. The rest of them were really good where, when they were wider fairways, right? Everyone was wide fairway. That one that was narrow was the day I hit the bad shot. And then there was a couple where one, I didn't know the line and I hit it perfectly. I hit it right online and I walk down there and I find that, oh, you can't hit it here. And then there was another one where I ran out through the fairway as well into, into a ditch. So, you know, these were costing me shots that weren't necessarily bad shots. And so this is where I think, you know, you need to dig a little deeper into the data sometimes. It can't just take strokes gained at face value. It'll probably even itself out over enough rounds of golf. I think a little bit more analysis is needed, but we have discussed that before. Hmm. So what else is on your list? We've probably gone a little random here. Yeah. I mean, going back to some of the cheaper ones, a foam golf ball 
It's excellent, yeah, especially in the winter one. when you're making swing changes. So making swing changes are very, very difficult. There's competing interests. You know, our brain is partly concerned with, I want to hit a good shot. I want to get a good result. And partly concerned with, I want to make my swing change. And unfortunately, the things that usually, the thing that wins out is the, I want to hit a good shot part. And when that wins out, you will revert back to your old swing your old outcome it becomes very very difficult to change emotion when you want a good outcome the moment you disarm that and you say i don't care about the outcome that's when you're more open to making a swing change so in the initial stages of a swing change that's very important to do now you could just say to yourself i don't care about the result but uh, <laughs> it's not easier said than easier, done right? yeah easier yeah. said than done so a way around that would be to actually take the result away, which is to take the golf ball away. But then you have the problem of, well, I can make this new swing change when there's no golf ball there, but you put the golf ball there and there's such a big disparity between the two that I revert. So the intermediate ground is a foam golf ball. You know, it effectively takes the result away whilst giving you still an object to hit. So it's that nice middle ground between practice swing and real ball with results. So yeah, foam ball is what, a couple of dollars, something like that, or less than a dollar a ball if you buy them in bulk. And I, I love them. They're my favorite training aid in lessons, or favorite thing to improve people. Yeah. Also, I mean, I, I know you and me are not huge alignment rod guys, but you know, you can get them. Those are inexpensive if, if they help you with some intent on your alignment and stuff like I, I just I don't love straight lines in golf for whatever reason, but I see I mean there's pro golfers who use them and that they they can be used in, in very creative and helpful ways. So you know you can buy them at Home Depot. It's the same exact thing that you would you wouldn't know this Adam because you live in Vegas. But every time it snows in the Northeast, people put these rods down around their property so that the snow plows don't hit their cobblestone and other stuff on their property. So you can buy these at Home Depot. They're technically alignment rods too. They're just long pieces of plastic rods. So you don't have to buy the expensive quote unquote golf one. You can buy the same one at Home Depot for less money. So yeah, that to me was another one that stuck out. Like if, if used properly and productively, like that's a, you can have outsized returns for five bucks. Yeah. I just put a club on the ground. I yeah, me or or that. Have. Yes, yeah. exactly. Sometimes <laughs> I do that too. Sometimes I yeah, I just throw the club down and just to verify where my feet and body were kind of aimed and look back at it. Yeah, we've done a whole episode on alignment, and as as you said, it's it's good to check it every now and again. It's good to put one down and do a little bit of block, block practice with it, but don't become reliant on it. I think too many people become completely reliant. I've actually done testing where people where where you get one group who actually has to go through the process of aligning all the time without using alignment rod but they're checking it there's a specific process for it and then another group that just puts a club down on the ground and beats balls from there and it's actually the one that beats balls they don't learn that much alignment not as much as you'd think it's actually you've got to go through the act of getting out of the bay learning how to align to a different target each time checking it corroborating it with what you feel is correct as well so yeah you can become overly reliant on alignment rods and i would advise against that definitely because you don't have yeah. them on the course Exactly. I X'd about this the other day where I said, I'm not against them, but people use them as a crutch and you don't get straight lines on the golf course. You get a lot of spots that are putting you in uncomfortable directions, tee boxes, approach shots. And the only way to build that skill is to make yourself uncomfortable during practice, as you said. So I'm with you there. They're okay as diagnostic. I think for more like beginner and intermediate players, because there's some golfers who you're like, 
did you know you were aimed 40 yards right of your target? And they're like, no. So I think for the beginner to intermediate player, they can be very helpful just to give like that visual feedback being like, oh, that's where I was actually aligned and aimed. And as you get better, I'd prefer you to remove them as much as possible. That being said, you go to a tour event, plenty of top playing professionals still using them. Does that mean they're the best thing or not? I don't know. You could probably take it away from them and they'd be fine still. That's a tough one to answer. But yeah, I think some alignment feedback is absolutely helpful. It's almost like there's a sweet spot for alignment rod use. Yeah. (laughs) Too much versus too little. Exactly. We've done a whole episode on launch monitors. I'm not going to go through the whole thing again. You can get great feedback from some of the lower priced ones on like wedge distances. You can play some games with them. You can work on your swing speed like the PRGR. Models like the Rapsodo are getting better and better. The new SkyTrack that came out is awesome. It has like a bunch of club data too. Like, How much is that one? It's $3,000 and they finally got club data. So you're getting like path, face angle, everything. And I used the original SkyTrack for years and I, I credit it to me really honing in my driver numbers, launch angle, spin rate, working on start direction. So I think that I invested $2,000 in that SkyTrack. Actually, I didn't. I'm lying. Our buddies at Shop Indoor Golf gave me a discount. So it probably paid like $1,600 for it. My buddy Renee helped me out a long time ago, though, being truthful. So I spent $1,600 on this thing, something about like that. And I used it for five years, six years, every winter working wedge distances, getting my iron numbers, working on driver. Like I would credit that to a lot of me going from near scratch down to deep into plus territory because I was able to get that feedback hitting into nets and and getting the the ball visualization of feedback. So yeah, I think if used properly, launch monitors can be incredible tools. Are they going to instantly make you better? No. But again, this is some of the stuff we like to talk about to make those investments better. So yeah, I think if you had the budget and you earmarked some money for that and you were like, I'm going to buy this and have it for five plus years, something like a SkyTrack and all the other options at this point, that that could be a really good investment in your game, especially for the golfers who have winters and off seasons like I do, you know, using those three or four months to like do some experimentation, keep your swing fresh. I think there's some really big returns on that investment to be had as well. I did a little poll with golfers who use launch monitors to see how many of them got better with them. They can be negatives to them initially you know i'm sure you've heard of indoor swing syndrome right where people it's a thing i had it as well the first time i started hitting indoors i felt like a 15 handicap but you quickly get used to it and the more i went in and out you know hitting balls indoors going back outdoors it kind of dissipated and and disappeared so they can be short-term detriments but in this poll everyone said or 99 percent of people said that with long-term use they all got better by using the the simulators indoors and the launch monitors. So I would highly recommend them. And yeah, while they are expensive, they're getting cheaper, number one. I mean, you can get the SkyTrack for 3000 I know it's not cheap, but neither is a new set of clubs and people are happy to fork out for those. And you're also, for most of these, you're going to have it for years. I mean, you could easily keep some of these good launch monitors for up to 10 years. Like there's, there's no reason why... I have no reason to change my GC quad. I know that's the upper end. But even with like a Mevo Plus, that's $2,000. You can add on extra to it. 
it's it gives not you all gonna, the data well, you need. Exactly. None of the data it's giving you is going to go out of style, like yeah. spin rate, launch angle, like simulated ball flight. Like There's not going to be a new parameter coming no, up. No. And, and we're not encouraging people to go crazy with the numbers. We're more, I just think it's good. If you can get that level that gives you the ball flight feedback and give it to you accurately, that's a big game changer. Like I know some people like that Garmin one, but I think it struggles with spin access and doors. I don't know if they've updated it, but there's this like, you know, five, $600 level that's starting to give simulated ball flight. And there still is a big difference between that level and that two or $3,000 level. So yeah, well, we're comparing, again, we're not telling people who don't have the budget to go buy this, but if you're looking at the golf market in general and people buying like $1,500 sets of irons and $160 wedges and $700 drivers, I believe in club fitting. And I would tell, I'm going to cross over into equipment really quickly here and give my thoughts there. I think if you got fit after you developed a more consistent swing, like maybe after you got lessons, that's the time to get fit. If you get fit once and go back to all of our episodes with Woody Lashin to really understand what you go through, you don't have to change clubs. I'm playing the same irons for almost eight years or seven years that Woody fit me for. Driver, you didn't have to change that. You know, Technology is not going to change that much in five or six years. Wedges are the only ones that wear out. I have the same putter for six years. Like Once I get it right, I'm not going to change just because something new and shiny came out. So I view club fitting, while it's not cheap, the better fitters will ask you to pay extra for it. If you have the budget and you say, I'm going to do this once every five or 10 years, that can be an outsized return rather than just being like, oh, the new Titleist driver came out or the new Callaway one and it looks better than last year. And it's like, oh, I spent $700 on that. It's like, that's that I think is, I would say, waste of money, but an inefficient use of money versus getting it done properly and then resisting the urge to keep changing over over a period of years. I see how golfers are collecting putters and drivers and all these shafts and thousands of dollars going out the door. I had my last putter for 20 years, an Odyssey two ball, and I changed my irons. Last set of irons I had for 13 years. Last driver I had for 13 years as well, and I've changed them over now. You don't need to do it a lot. Definitely. No, I think you uh, might. I'd be. I feel confident saying you might have to bury me with my current putter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also think people should put things in terms of you know the life lifetime of that. So, say you have a good launch monitor. Say someone's weighing up. Oh, I've, could I get that seven hundred dollar launch monitor, or should I go for the two thousand dollars? I'm like. Like if you got the budget, go for the 2000 because it's going to give you better data. You're going to have it for 10 years. So really, if you spread that cost over 10 years mentally, it's almost negligible, right? And if you're hitting balls a lot on it, think of the, the money you'll save rather than having to go to the range three times a week and spending money on range balls, which can be significant out, out in Vegas, especially. You know, if you're hitting balls into a net now, you're going to be saving money that way as well. And if the if the information is good, you'll be confident that the practice you're doing is actually having benefit for you. So rather than having a launch monitor that you're kind of, oh, is it giving me good advice? Is it not? Like some of the cheaper ones you mentioned can be a little off with spin axis. Whereas I think like the once you get to $2,000 Mevo plus range, Skytrack, they're much more consistent with those things. Yeah, I think you and me are probably similar consumers where we're not frivolous spenders, but we like to invest in things for the long term. And I think marketing in general, 
whether it's the golf industry or any other industry, like iPhones, like think of anything, like the goal is always to get you to buy every two years, like with a newer, flashier model that has like just a little bit better features. But again, as we said, if you saved up for a longer period of time and resisted the urge to keep buying, you know, the less expensive ones and keep getting new ones versus saying like, I'm going to get the better one and really hold on to this for a long time. Then like, yeah, if you did like an actual cost analysis, like you might save money in the long run. But again, I I know everyone listening to the show is in different financial situations. So if you don't have the money for a launch monitor, like you're not missing out on like everything. But that's one thing that one piece of technology and, and feedback, you know, we talked about feedback with training aids. Like, yeah, that is very good feedback if you can get a little bit better one. Yeah, I'd say just spread out the cost mentally over the course of 10 years and also take into account the money you'd be saving from golf balls. When you do that, it can maybe make your decision a little easier. And hide your credit card statement from your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I always get emails or like your, that. Or My your wife. husband, yeah. Or, yeah, I, get, I always the, the the significant other factor because as we all know, the non-golfers look at us like we're psychopaths and we're so obsessed with this thing. And they're like, why do you need to buy all this stuff around it? And we just, we do. That's what we do. In what this I game. see in the, I saw a meme that it was from a golf shop that said, if you want for an extra 10 bucks, we can change the receipt so that it says <laughs> yeah, X, Y, Z instead of golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. But yeah, in terms of like equipment and stuff, or even the launch round, I was like, I think my main our main point is is that you don't need to constantly keep changing and upgrading. Like, do it right once, and have that long term mindset. And I think your money will be better spent. And that could be with lessons too, like a lot of things. Whereas if you're the frivolous consumer and you're being constantly pulled by ads, and like I, I'll be fully honest, like I run ads for my video course, so I'm guilty of running ads. But I think. I'm offering a ton of value for what I'm giving you guys. So I, I hope I'm one of the, the good guys in the industry. But as Adam said, and I've been in rooms with people who are shilling some of the not so great stuff, they don't really care about your game. Like they just want your money. Like I've been behind closed doors where I've heard those conversations and it's just, you know, the marketing machine is so powerful in this game. The commercials, the email stuff, the Facebook ads, it can get people on this hamster wheel where they're just buying, 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 and they're not really getting much benefit from it. And that sucks. Like, I don't want people to spend money and not get better. That's that's not a good combination. Yeah. I remember when I first released my book, I had a little bit of imposter syndrome and I, I certainly felt guilty about charging, was it 26 bucks for a book? I felt guilty about it. And I remember telling someone who had read it and they said, Adam, I've spent thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah. on drivers there's more value in this book than even if you charge 10 times the amount so do not feel guilty for doing it and that gave me the kind of freedom to start promoting the book a little bit more without feeling that imposter syndrome but yeah it's you know in terms of investment or return on investment things like books and courses and things like that are, are very big by the way with the simulators the point i was going to make i know i sounded as if i was pushing people to spend more and more on them but on the other end of the spectrum i don't think people need to go out and buy a gc quad or a Trackman. Sorry, no, those are sorry professional. You guys. Yeah, yeah, those are professional products. Yeah, I mean, if you have more money than sense, great. But I have one, but I'm a professional. But honestly, you know, after the first couple of months of 
looking at path and face and spin axis and everything like that i'm pretty much just looking at ball flight using it you know i can i occasionally check the strike location on there but you can do that with face spray do i look at the face number no <laughs> the ball direction tells me what the face did do i look at the path eh, occasionally but again the ball flight tells me if my path is getting too far out of yeah. whack you know i don't need to know 0.1 of a degree what my path is to play good golf you know and i can tell by the ball flight if it's getting three four five degrees offline you don't need to go for these high-end professional devices unless you've got money to burn but you can always send it my way if you want <laughs> <laughs> there was an anecdote recently. I don't remember when the interview was, but I guess it was an interview with all three Harmons, Butch, Claude, and why am I forgetting the third Harmon? Legendary family. Billy, right? Yeah. Legendary family of, of instructors. Like I, I can't think of names that are more respected. And they, I think at the end of the interview, they asked him, who is the best teacher? Like I, maybe amongst the three of them. And they all responded at the same time, ball flight. That's the best teacher. Uh, yeah. Certainly is, especially with irons. I mean, even with drivers now, because yeah. the gear, gear effect, yeah, can cause a different shape. But you know where the ball lands now, with uh, gear effect has been minimized by face curvature and you know moment of inertia and stuff. So yeah, ball flight is pretty good across the bag now. Yep, I'm looking at my notes here. One of my final thoughts on like best investment in your game. I wrote playing golf. And I'll reiterate a point I constantly make everywhere is that if you want to get better at this game, you do need to be playing a certain amount. And again, I know golf has gotten more expensive. Even municipal courses and public courses are charging more than ever because there's been a lot of interest in the game. And of course, you know, as supply or interest increases, they can increase prices too, and T sheets are booked. But can't account for everyone's situation. But yeah, if, if you have serious intentions of getting better at this game, there is a certain, I put this in my book, I put this on social media all the time. I just remind people that, you know, you could beat balls forever. You could buy all the technology and get all the club fitting and everything we've discussed in this episode, but there has to be a certain threshold of being on the golf course. And what I talked about earlier in this episode, dealing with those emotions that I had in that tournament. And the emotions you face in normal rounds and you only learn and get better from that by actually playing enough golf that doesn't mean you need to play three or four times a week but if you only play eight times a year and you really want to get better i don't think that's enough or if you can't play enough and you don't have the budget to play enough then just adjust your expectations say okay i can only play this amount i only have this much money to play you know maybe don't be so hard on yourself with your expectations of your handicap and playing level I do truly always want to remind people that the best learning and the best feedback you gather occurs during a live round of golf. You cannot simulate it. Well, you just kill my point with that last word. I was going to say a nice bridge now that's getting better and better between the practice yeah, the launch monitor stuff and the, yeah. and the playing is the simulation of golf. So yeah, if you do have a simulator... Or if you're planning on getting a simulator, keep in or mind that- you can buy that time at one. You can buy time at plenty of these places now. Five Iron Golf and all these places are popping up everywhere. You don't have to own yeah. it. Yeah, renting a launch monitor is something I've got as a point. But yeah, if you're getting, getting your own launch monitor, keep in mind the simulation software that comes with it as well because there's lots of stuff coming out. I know SkyTrack have got their own 
software, right? That's supposed to look really, really good. And then we also play on, we've done TGC 2019. Now we play GS Pro. And not only is the simulation getting better and better, the graphics are getting better and better. You're starting to feel much more like you're on the actual golf course. And it's a beautiful way to practice because it's random practice, right? You're having to hit a drive, then step out of the bay, get a different club. Not quite like real golf, but it's It's way better than beating balls. Yeah, it's definitely closer. It's the closest thing for sure. And it's great practice. So that is a wonderful point. And you've also got these communities as well with GS Pro. You've got these online leagues, the simulatorgolftour.com. And you've even got leaderboards. You've got world rankings. And they're very competitive. I mean, these guys are shooting incredible amounts under par now. And you've got all your stats laid out there for you. They're playing tournaments each week. It's really competitive. It adds that extra pressure. And uh, yes, really bridging the gap, I think. And so, you know, for me, I can't get out and play a round of golf as much as I want, but I can go upstairs and play a round in an hour and get a very similar experience. Or it's not too far off when I'm playing well on the simulator and I go out next day and I play real golf. They're very, very similar. The shot shapes that I'm hitting, the, the way that I'm striking it, the way that I'm scoring, very, very similar. So... Yeah, I think it does require, I think you mentioned this earlier, like enough back and forth. So like the first time I ever used the simulator was like eight or nine years ago. I had access to one over winter and I was playing great. And then I went out in the spring and was just like totally clueless. I was expecting to play like I was on the simulator and it was just two different golfers. And over the years going back and forth, you know, I've been able to make that adjustment. So There's definitely benefits to it from going back and forth to the real golf and the simulated golf. Again, especially for for golfers who are in cold weather, even like you. I know in Vegas, sometimes it's just unplayable in the summer. It gets too hot. But yeah, it is a great tool. So again, everything in the, the common theme always with us is being balanced and modest in your expectations and all that. And I don't think you need to spend crazy amounts of money to become a better golfer. I think you could do it on a budget relative to obviously your your salaries and, and what your disposable income is. I don't want anyone diverting funds that were going to their college funds for their kids and other important things in their life. So You can't eat this week. Daddy's got a new yeah. simulator. <laughs> we need that SkyTrack. <laughs> Dad heard about the new SkyTrack, so he's going to go buy it. And we're going to have rice and beans for a week maybe instead of filet mignon. I always feel sometimes awkward talking about money because we have so many people who listen to this show around the world and and we truly thank you for that. And I know you're all in different economic situations. So um, you can always take with what we say as as a grain of salt. We don't have an answer for everyone. Even yeah, the a foam, foam ball, ball yeah. in your back garden is a good tool. If you've got a, a spray as well, you can work on strike quality. You're not going to get ball flight data. I mean, you, you see a little bit of ball flight, maybe depending on how big, big the backyard is, but it might not be realistic with a foam ball. But working just on strike alone, you know, if you see the vertical strike on the face, that gives you an indication of ground contact. And then obviously the toe and heel strike. So those are two things that you can definitely improve in the back garden with just less than 10 bucks of... 10 bucks a spend, really. I mean, if you can add a $2,000 launch monitor to yeah, it, you I, get ball flight, but it's not needed. I think if you listen to this, you go back and listen to a lot of episodes we've done on this show where we've truly given you a lot of our secrets and information. It's all for free. 
and buy some of these like low cost things like yeah you can make some serious meaningful improvements in this game hopefully buy my book adam's book there's 50 bucks or one of our online things but you could do some damage with less than a couple hundred bucks and the right intentions and the right motivation and the right discipline and habits you could become a great golfer and then all the other stuff the new clubs the club fitting the three thousand dollar launch monitors like yeah, those are nice to have and having a big budget for playing nice golf courses also nice to have. If you're you know, you and I are big personal finance geeks. We love to save a ton of money, put it in low cost index funds and and let time do its thing. But yeah, I always want people to be smart with their money and and whatever you purchase, make sure it has a lot of utility. I just I really can't stand when people blow a ton of money in golf and get nothing for it. So, yeah, hopefully I've given are- you some warnings. I mean, people are changing clubs every year, every two years, even every three years. I'm just like, ah, oh, that money could be better, much better spent. It's or you go on the golf, was it golf WRX forums with people talking about the shit? I've spent some time with everyone just obsessed with shafts and all oh, the like. No. I have eight different shafts, and I use this one on this day in the wind, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you've just wasted. $4,000 on aftermarket shafts and you're just not doing anything meaningful with them. Like again, if you'd taken that three or four grand and invested in lessons and other things that we talk about, that's what we mean. Like if you were someone spending that level of money and used your budget more efficiently, then I think your upside would be higher. Yeah. I mean, you can get a lot of, on the terms of lessons, you can get a lot of stuff for free. Definitely. I mean, just listening to our podcast, we get so many emails, tweets and things from people who have got the free information from us and and have improved definitely so if you listen to enough free information you're going to improve but the premium products are basically there to speed up that learning right so give you the information and laid out in a different way in a better way give you all the things that we don't give you that help speed up the learning so you don't have to spend on those things but it just gives you that little kick up the up the butt (laughs) to get get it done faster Fair enough i think that's a fair explanation yeah you you pay to get something organized and have it delivered to you more efficiently that's what books are that's what any learning is is like you paid for an author to do years of research and organize the information in a way that makes sense and flows properly you could have gone to the library and read those hundreds of books too and done all that research but that's why you spend 20 bucks on a book someone did all that work for you that's I'm explaining capitalism, I guess. (laughs) We're at the point of the episode where I guess we're at our our time. And I always ask you, how much more do you have? And then you say, well, I've got- I haven't got much. I haven't got much. Oh my God, I'm shocked. (laughs) 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 I think I've said most of what I want to say, but you typically always have more in your notes than I do. Uh, It's usually the instruction. When we're talking about instructions or technique, that's when I I go off for hours at a time. But no, the only one that I've got here is uh, good golf golf jacket so you know i remember as a kid playing in the uk hammering down with rain and you know i was basically swinging with feeling like the michelin man yeah now jacket technology is better and if you've got the money again invest in something good because you can keep it for a number of years and they're less restrictive now while keeping you warm keeping you away from the wind and the rain and it's very helpful because it's very difficult swinging with a restrictive jacket on you are a hundred percent right. So I used to have like I used to be someone who purchased like cheap outerwear. It's bulky in the wrong places. It rips. It doesn't keep you warm. It doesn't keep the rain out. 
And luckily, because I have done a lot of product reviews over there, like, yeah, I've gotten a lot of stuff from some of the top brands like Galvin Green and Zero Restriction and other stuff and invested in, in my own sometimes. But the difference is palpable. And it's another thing where if you bought a really good set of rain gear or warm gear, it legitimately can save you strokes. And again, you could just buy it once and it'll last 10 years. Like the outerwear that I have now when it's cold or rainy or windy, I don't feel uncomfortable swinging at all versus the other stuff that again was bulky in the wrong places and I'm like fighting it in my swing. It could keep you warmer, more swing speed, drier, like it can have a tangible impact on your game for sure. So I'm glad you brought that up because again, if you do have the budget and you want to do it once every 10 10 years, buy like a really good set of outerwear and warm weather gear and it will, I think, pay off. Yeah, I mean, a good jacket. You you could probably put it in terms of strokes gained, right? If you put oh, someone easily. in a bad jacket and they lose a bit of swing speed, maybe lose their strike quality. I mean, I feel it more in direction, definitely. I In a bad jacket, I just can't feel like I control the club face as well. And so, yeah, I mean, you could put it in terms of strokes gained. I would say a bad jacket easily cost you two strokes around. Yeah, you could lose. I think you could lose swing speed. I, I think you could lose face control. Yeah, the difference, again, now that I've tried a lot of them, there is a significant difference between spending, I don't know, $200 on a rain jacket versus 50 something like that. So the difference is big there. But again, budget according to your budgets and everything, but we do play out in the elements and again, I play in everything, rain, wind, cold, so it's important. A good jacket lasts longer. I've bought so many jackets for 30 40 50 bucks that you know after a year, they're torn. That's the thing is, you yeah. know, I've got a Galvin green one that down there that's 10, 12 years old. that's still going strong. <laughs> so Yeah, I think the difference is, is like, and I find this with a lot of products like socks or whatever, like any, if you spend more and you can keep it longer and have a better experience, you'd probably end up spending the same amount if you got the cheaper one and kept having to replace it over the years. So I think that's a, a great analogy with outerwear. Cool. I'm done. All right. uh, one thing. <laughs> one, one, thing. one more thing. One yeah, more. We'll be here for two I mean, more we've, hours. We've talked about club fit. One of the things you can do is very cheap is just changing lies if you need to, if you need to. So, you know, I had my lie angles changed. They were what, two or three bucks a club, I think, just to bend them. And I think that's something that people could do to change direction if you have directional biases. I was finding for some reason, most of my clubs are straight, but my four iron was leaking off a little bit more to the right and my nine iron was leaking off to the left. The rest of the clubs were straight. So I just flattened my nine iron, lie angle a little bit and made my four iron one degree more upright and it just made the set more neutral. And obviously I was checking with my GC quad to make sure they're not dynamically in horrendous positions, but they're all a little different, but it helps me with that bias for which for whatever reason I have. Yeah, I think lie angle is probably the most influential thing to get right in your irons and wedges. Go back to our episodes with Woody Lashton to learn more about it. But yeah, that could be, you might not need a new set of irons. You must, might just need your, your lie angles adjusted. That happened yeah, to me once. Maybe just one club. Maybe just one yep. club in your set if that's the, the bad one. Yep. Cool. All right. Done. Is that it? I'm done. We're done. Okay. I guess we covered a lot. Just again, a thank you to everyone who's been sending me a lot of nice messages about the mid-am qualification and meddling that I did. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully I <laughs> hopefully I play okay and don't turn into a nervous wreck. But if I do, that'll be a learning experience. So thanks everyone for their support there. 
You can find me, John Sherman. You can check out Practical Golf or my Four Foundations of Golf website, my book and video course. Try and modestly price it so you get outsized returns for your budget. So you can check out my products there and support me. And Adam, where can everyone find your stuff? AdamYoungGolf.com. If you want more, forward slash products. And that is all there, all my game improvement products from books, the divot boards there as well, strike plan, accuracy plan. Or just keep listening to the podcast, subscribe to support us, like all our posts on Twitter and X. If you're spending your money on golf stuff and want to support us in different ways, then, you know, retweets, likes, they help us grow our brand and I think some nice comments as well. Everyone spend their money wisely and we will see you soon with a new episode.